This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, this is London Calling. Are you receiving me, Doncaster? I am. Welcome home. Thank you. Although it is, you know, slightly disappointing to get back and then discover that I'm not going to be in the same room as you for this week's podcast. I know. I'm sorry about that. Did you get my gift, then? My welcome home gift? I didn't, and nor did I get an invitation to come and visit Doncaster. Because it, it, it's, it's starting to feel very much like the George Ezra lunch all over again. What, because Joel got an invite to come up? Yeah, so you've got Joel, uh, who works with us up there with you, but uh, there was there was no invitation extended extended to me. I just sort of thought that you were incredibly busy and between Five Live and Radio 2 and three podcasts and family and, you know, sort of uh, blankety-blank and, uh, yeah, you know... You're, f- you're floundering like an upturned turtle washed up on the shore. I'm, you, be, you, you have an open invitation to come uh, to my constituency. It will be more. Would be it will be a pleasure to welcome you. We'll put out the bunting signs. <laughs> you know, but there'll be people marching down the street to welcome you to the train station. What do we want? The Jeffocracy. When do we want it? At some point, maybe. Uh, you know, de- honestly. Great. I'll be on the. I'll be on the next train there. Can I cut a ribbon? I'd love to cut a ribbon. Yep. Or break yep. some ground. Is it, could I break some ground? Definitely. Something with a hard hat. Could you arrange that? And a high-vis jacket? Yeah, de- definitely. Definitely. Okay. George Osborne circa 2013. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Christmas lights? Because I know you've had previous expertise on the Christmas lights. I have, yeah. Because, you know, I've already done Macclesfield. So maybe Doncaster could be uh, ne- next on the on the list. I mean, it's a low bar, really, if they're asking me to do it. No, I don't think it's a low bar. I think, I think, I think, uh, with some sort of a celebrity accompaniment, it would be perfect. <laughs> so you're basically saying I'd be like somebody who'd won a competition to stand next to a celebrity while they uh, turn the Christmas lights on. This isn't going very well. This conversation is. And are you imagining yourself as that celebrity? I don't know. I think right, I think you'd honestly right. you'd receive a hero's welcome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, I won't be getting that next train then. Yeah. Uh, how How was it coming home? Uh, it's been fine. It's, it's something that happened. I thought I'd tell you about. It's a, a bit cutesy, but I think it's uh, I think it's not a bad story. So while we've been on holiday, I my, you know my son has got very very curly hair. Yes. Quite often now in the street or if we go into a shop, somebody will say to him, "Oh, I love your hair." So I've been trying to train him for a laugh. Whenever somebody says that to him, to if somebody says, "I like your hair," I've been trying to get him to go, "Big hair, don't care." as a little catchphrase yeah you with me i think that's quite a funny thing to train your three and a half year old definitely to do. anyway so we were down the uh, the high street the other day and um uh, an old lady came up to him and said oh i love your hair and i'm crossing my fingers and thinking please say big hair don't care please say big hair don't care and he doesn't what he does is he plucks a strand of his own hair out and says here you can have some wow <laughs> do you think that's and what happens well, she, you know, she she was a little taken aback at a toddler offering her some of his own hair, but she was very gracious and accepted it, and then I'm sure dropped it into a bin a few seconds later. I think that shows great generosity, though. I think so as well. I think it reflects very well a little bit on him, but mainly on me as a parent and what type of child I'm raising. It's funny you should say this because, you know, Sam, my younger son, has very curly hair, and he's he's cut a lot of it off so his hair is now straight and quite short 
It's mm. a, it's a sort of real statement of independence. Well, when I when I was a kid, I had like you know, like my son, I had Art Garfunkel esque hair, and then you know at some point it just became a little bit wavy, like Liberace's. Yeah, I see yeah. you as a sort of Liberace type figure. Were you were you a curly curly lad? Bizarrely enough, I was had blonde curls till I was about three. I mean, really? I, I wonder whether I've sort of there's kind of substitute photos of me, but anyway. <laughs> Honestly, so I, yeah, I had I had blonde curly hair until I was th- three or four, and then it gradually became dark and straight. Well, can I just say, I for one would welcome any of our listeners who are skilled in the arts of Photoshop, definitely, to, uh, to mock up what Ed would look like uh, with blonde ringlets. Whose hair would I have sort of imposed on me? Think of somebody whose hair I would have sort of. I'm thinking, I'm sort of thinking the orphan Annie. Yes, maybe that's right. <laughs> Maybe that's right. Well, I look for. I, I definitely look forward to the Photoshop. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how that goes. Um, what are we going to be talking about this week? So this week we're talking about high streets. Ten uh, percent of shop units in the UK are currently empty, and the first six months of 2019 saw nearly twice as many shop closures as openings each day. And, and of course, we regularly see stories about major high street brands in trouble or going into administration, the role of the internet and so on. We're going to be talking to Professor Kathy Parker about the extent of high street decline and the history of the issue. Then we're joined by Vidya Alexson from Power to Change, which helps community businesses to take over high street space. And then Johnny Hayes, who also known as Mr. Bishy Road, who played a big part in turning around Bishy Road, hence his name, in York, uh, which has now seen one of, one of the most successful high streets in the country. And I just warn you in advance, Jeff, I'm going to be pushing my idea for the revival of the high streets, which, of course, is the make your own sandwich shop. Let it go. Let it's, it's been debunked on a number no, of occasions. You, this is determination. You've got to have persistence, honestly. You see, well, I, I suppose when you came up with your idea for, you know, uh, curtailing the energy companies, they laughed at you. Exactly. And you talked about the... The, the the living wage they left exactly. you and, and, and yeah now these ideas have exactly. been adopted okay okay well we'll we'll see how that goes I, I predict it will go poorly and then for cheerful people this week uh, I'm very excited to say that we're going to be joined by Julian Richer who you will know as the founder of Richer Sounds um, he is quite an incredible man you may have read in the news earlier this year that he transferred sixty percent of his company into an employee owned trust he wrote a book called the the ethical capitalist and he will be this week's cheerful person can i just say don't try and get like a free high five from him what about begging letters i don't, I don't no i don't think upon that as well i don't okay. think it's a good look i, don't well, I, I won't th- look. i won't thrust one into his pocket as, he, as he's leaving them apart from your son's curly hair what's your reason to be cheerful um, I'm, I'm going to go with the, and I know everybody is talking about this now, but I, I was banging on about it more than a year ago. This TV show, Succession. Is this about Rupert Murdoch type of well, thing? Well, it's not about Rupert Murdoch. I mean, it's, it's, you, you watch it and you think, oh, they've based this on the Murdoch family. But, um, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily about him, uh, I'm guessing for legal reasons as much as anything else, but it is this media mogul who owns all these TV channels and film studios and newspapers and so on, and and his children who are vying to be his successor. It's written by Jesse Armstrong, who was one of the writers of Peep Show and wrote on the thick of it. And I, I remember watching it in Edinburgh last year and thinking, this is so good, why isn't everybody talking about it? And now everybody is talking about it, and it's so good. And I'm sure people listening to this will be sick of people banging on about 
about it. But I, I, I wondered about, like, um, assuming that you have met Rupert Murdoch at some point over the years. Well, I can't say I've you know, had much close relationship with the Murdoch, but obviously I, I did sort of have a big, you know, kind of Barney with them about Leveson and all of that, so and phone hacking and so on. So um, it's more been from a distance. So you could be on that hit list. Well, well, it is true that when I was involved in trying to stop him taking over Sky a couple of years back, which we were eventually successful in, um, he did say that he he came over to the UK and said it was going to go through, and he had a number of enemies in the UK. And I suspect I was I was on the list. That's exciting. Um, anyway, I recommend that highly. One of the great moments of my life was predicting exactly what would happen in the last uh, episode of Series One. It was. Honestly, I was so specific. I don't. I won't get into it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but for anybody right. who has, I'm going to watch. I'm, I'm going to start watching it's, it. It's it's really good. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. It's top notch television. What's your reason to be cheerful this week? So mine is about Park Run. It's the 15th birthday of Park Run around this week. Um, we all know Park Run. I've become a Park Run bore ever since we did the episode on Park Run. I mean, the figures are absolutely extraordinary. So the combined distance so far of the 53.8 million Park Runs that have been run is 162 million miles. There are 6 million users. Uh, the 21st country to have Park Run, uh, Japan, has just has just started. And what's really exciting is that the first park run in my constituency, where we're recording this on Friday, is starting tomorrow, Saturday. When people hear this episode, I will hopefully have been on that park run. There is one in Doncaster, which I've gone to, but but this is one in my constituency, and um, I'm I'm really excited. Fantastic. Have you have you got the lay of the land? Do you know if the course is steeper than your usual one? There was a warm up session on Tuesday, and I unfortunately couldn't couldn't make it Tuesday evening. So it's going to be sort of fresh virgin territory for me. So I'm not counting on a PB. A what? Personal best. Ah. Uh, also stands for Park Run Bore. Yes. I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. Is you can come to Doncaster to visit me, but you've got to go on Park Run with me. That deal's going to need some negotiating. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to Cathy Parker, who is Professor of Retail at Manchester Metropolitan University and co-chair of the Institute for Place Management, which is uh, the professional body for people working to develop and improve places. I wondered if we could start by you explaining sort of the extent of the decline in high streets in recent years and maybe then move on to the reasons behind this? Yeah, sure. I mean, if we look at the performance of high streets and town centres um, using some fairly standard indicators, then, you know, really mo- most of the sort of, if we look at a national level, all the indicators are going in the wrong way. So they're not as visited. Footfall's down nearly 20% in the last 10 years. They don't have as many shops on them. Um, Since the financial crash of 2008, we've lost nearly 400 major retailers. So that that actually equates to about 30,000 shops uh, across our high streets and town centres. And they're not attracting the same level of retail spending. So, I mean, if we turn the clock back to uh, around about 2000, half of all retail sales were made in town centres. And now that's down to less than 37%. And I suppose if we look at, um, you know, why is that? I mean, the one that people sort of pick up on is the Internet. Obviously, you know, that's a fairly new um, occurrence for us um, to have the uh, opportunity to not just shop in our towns and um, on high streets, but actually go online. 
But but actually, when we look at the figures, I mean, only 18% of retail sales are online. So, I mean, the vast majority still are in actual shops. And and what about like the big out-of-town shopping centres like the Trafford Centre in Manchester or Meadow Hall in Sheffield? So our research found that out-of-town uh, has had far more impact on town centres. Uh, in fact, when, uh, when we looked at all the factors that influence the success of our town centres, we actually found 201 different factors. And um, the impact of out-of-town was number four on that list. So it, it really has had quite a profound impact. And one of the reasons it is, is because it's been going on for a long time. Um, the first out-of-town centres opened up in the 1970s. But obviously, we haven't had the internet that, that long. This is a kind of phenomenon of the last 30 or 40 years, 10 or 20 years. What, how, would you, how would you describe the history of this? I describe the history of town centre change as something that's been, you know, has been happening ever since we've had our town centres. They've been changing. You know, some of our towns come from market charters that were, you know, in, um, doled out in sort of twelve hundred and something. Um, and you know, in that, if you imagine the type, the changes that have gone on in society and technology in all that time, no wonder our town centres have changed. It's not something even now. If we tackle it, you know, that's only going to work for a, a year or two some new change will come along and we'll have to start thinking about it all again. So, so Cathy, what you're saying is this this isn't a new problem? No, it's certainly not a new problem. And I've got a couple of quotes here that I'd like to just uh, give you. And you tell me what you think, what type of retailing do you think these quotes are focusing on? We like a good quiz, don't we, Jeff? We do. So people do not want to go into six different shops for six different articles. They prefer to buy the lot in one shop. What sort of retail do you think that is? Uh, super, so they're talking about supermarkets. It sounds like a supermarket to me as well. Okay, yeah, well, that's what most people say, but it's actually a quote that I found in the American Grocer in 1892. Oh, my God. Uh, and the quote's, uh, yeah, the quote's talking about the rise of the new department store, which was a new phenomenon in America. And these new department stores were opening up near trolley bus terminal. Right, what's the Let's next have another one? one yeah, this is fun. We, 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 we're not, we're, we're yeah, not out of one. one. For better or worse, this distributive revolution is carrying us away from shopkeeping to mass distribution. I mean, it feels like the 1950s to me. I know you want us to say it's the internet, yeah, but, but we've been bitten, once bitten, twice shy. So I'm trying to think what else <laughs> yeah. could it be. Could it be milk? Could it be the milkmen? Yeah, I mean that's that's a good guess, and it's good. You know, we're pretty near at nine, in the nineteen fifties. It's from um, an American economist, McNair, in nineteen thirty one. What he's actually talking about is the demise of the mom and pop store in the nineteenth century. Uh, the USA, like most places, were just dominated by family firms, and then you know by the nineteen thirties, the multiples had started taking over and putting a lot of them out of business. I'd say we comprehensively failed that test jeff wouldn't you yes yes i would before we get on to how we get there can you give us some good examples of what high streets that are doing this well either in the uk or, or elsewhere so what's the sort of gold standard that we should be looking for well, I mean, Altrincham at the moment is a bit of, of a poster town for town centre regeneration. Um, it won the um, England's best high street last year. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the Trafford Centre. 
mean, the Trafford Centre, uh, when it opens, was sort of Europe's second biggest out-of-town retail centre, and it, it opens right on Altrincham's doorstep. So it, it really decimated the town. So it's been a long journey for Altrincham from sort of 1997 when the Trafford Centre opened. Through that time, it's had, you know, the highest vacancy rates in, in England. It's really been very run down, um, and it's taken a long time for it to now come back um, to, to sort of being a really successful modern market town. And how has it succeeded Altrincham? Well, one of the things that people will pick up on in Altrincham is that it's regenerated the market hall. So the market, the, it's got a lovely historic market hall um, that had, his, you know, in, in the past, sort of, you know, your standard sort of market traders in there, um, which nowadays isn't necessarily what 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 people want. So there was um, a, a regeneration project, and an entrepreneur took over the running of the uh, market and opened it up as a food hall. Now you know it's busy, it's it's um, it's activating the town at times that weren't busy before because the food halls open in the evenings. People are coming to visit us at weekends. It's actually a sort of anchor, if you like, to a whole sort of regeneration scheme in the historic area of the town. Now, no one thing on its own. You might pick the market and sort of say, yeah, it's great, but it's not just that. They've also done other things. They've worked hard on public transport, on the public realm. They've got a hospital in the the town centre. They've been doing infill residential, co-working space, you name it. They've tried it in Altrincham, and that's really why it's successful. I think one thing that strikes me, though, about what you said towards the end is this isn't just about retail, is it? I mean, in other words, I think maybe that we can't just think the high street is for retail. It, 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 it's it's about a mix of things, isn't it? Yes, and I mean it, it always has been, but perhaps we've we've just sort of forgotten about that retail. We've sort of let retail dominate. Although you know our town centres have always played other functions. They've always been places of employment. They've always been the places the sort of public transport hubs. They've always, you know, they've given our, you know, give, they give us our identity. They're sort of places that we want to socialise, go out, etc. So I think, you know, it's not so much about, oh, we, you know, retail's declining, therefore we, we can do these other things. We probably should have always thought about these other things. Um, and if we had been thinking a bit more about these other uses, perhaps we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. But anyway, yes, obviously, with the decline in the retail sector, that brings a lot of opportunities to repurpose space in our town centres uh, for other uses. There's um, been a lot of conversation uh, around business rates and how that affects town centres. So, for example, online retailers, they have these big out of town warehouses which are charged at different uh, business rates. Uh, how, how does that play into high street revival? It's interesting when you sort of compare what the sort of academic research says with the sort of perceptions of people. Uh, we took a, undertook a consultation exercise uh, last June um, with lots of different types of place managers, people like that are in charge of business improvement districts and city centre managers and so on. And they identify business rates as the number one challenge um, that government should act on. For these people that are managing towns, you know, they've got lots of retailers in their patches and those retailers will be saying to them, you know, this is a massive pressure on us. So I think there's a little bit of a perhaps a difference between when we actually take a step back and think about the overall success of town centres, when we need to be thinking about things like accessibility and vision and leadership, 
you know, and we need to put business rates in that mix. You know, we can't just take it out and think it's a, a sort of panacea. But I absolutely agree with what you're saying. You know, there's not a level playing field at the moment for the retailers. So I do have sympathy for them. The internet companies don't pay business rates, essentially. Well, they'll pay business rates on their warehousing operations, yeah, but that no, they're not they're not paying at the same rate. I mean, the land value at in and out of town, you know, where those sorts of operations are, are going to be very, very different to what the um, sort of rateable value is in town. So it's not, it's you know, that that's certainly not fair. So, Cathy, we have a thing on the podcast uh, called the Jeffocracy. I'm a, a supreme, very benign uh, ruler, and I would like to appoint you Minister for Town Centres. What, what is the first thing you would like to do on day one? Well, the first thing I'd like to do as Minister of Town Centres is to make sure that everyone's got some accurate data on town centres and that that data goes to the local decision makers as well. I think we've had a lot of sort of anecdotes in in, in sort of underpinning decision making. So that's one thing I think we could do, which would really help. Um, We're going into an era where to be successful in the future, every town needs to understand its catchment and come up with its plan that's right for its local area. Uh, So data is going to be quite, quite important to that. And then, you know, support people. Let's make let's make the the partnerships more robust in these areas. It's not going to be just the local authority making decisions anymore. It's got to involve the community got to involve local businesses so i'd like to see better you know strengthen partnerships uh, across our town centers well i think that sounds like a, a good first day in your new job and you have the full might of the office for national statistics or whatever you need at, at your disposal whenever you want it <laughs> uh, kathy parker thank you so much now to talk about what can be done we're joined by vidya alexson who is chief executive of power to change a trust established in 2015 to support the growth of community businesses. Vidya, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about Power to Change to begin with. Power to Change was established to really create a big momentum behind community businesses in England. So we see these as really exciting ways in which local people can come together to tackle challenges that they face locally, but through a business model. So they are social purpose businesses that are rooted in place, led by local people and benefiting their local communities. So you could think of them as locally rooted social enterprises if that you know, helps people get their head around it. You would recognise them in community shops, community pubs, community led housing, community owned kind of um, energy generation. So solar farms, for example, there's a, a large number of them owned by communities, community leisure centres, um, a whole range of things. I mean, the, the diversity of things that communities in this country are now owning and running for the benefit of their, of local people is huge. Community-run gin distilleries, community-run ferry boats. We funded a community-run lobster hatchery. I mean, it's really immensely diverse. Um, not all of that, obviously, relevant to the high street. Jeff and I want to set up a lobster hatchery, don't we, Jeff? I want to free the lobsters. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long-term dream. And tell us how your work relates to the discussion we're having today about high streets and, 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 and what we do to, to revive our high streets. So we've supported many community businesses that are part of high street revival in their local areas. So a lot of them are taking over empty shops and turning them into alternative uses, um, workspaces, combinations of workspaces and community spaces and uh, housing, for example, um, all bringing life back to the high street, particularly in areas where there isn't necessarily big demand from commercial actors to be part of that high street revival so we see them as really critical to how we go forward 
And and tell us what is the role specifically of com- the community businesses you support, do you think, in the revival of high streets? Why are they so important to the revival of high streets? I think it's um, twofold. They are have a long-term interest in the curation of their place. They are there for the long term. So when they do take over um, properties, they are sticking with it for the long term. You know, whether the economy goes up or down, they're there and they have a real interest in what happens within that place. Um, and as we've seen, uh, we ran some data for the report that we published recently, which looked at um, ownership of empty properties and saw that it was significantly lower for both local authorities and social sector organisations, including community business. And we see it, we see that because they have that long-term interest in the place. The other thing we think is really important is that their rootedness in local area and their connection to local people means that they're often better able to provide what that local community really needs. So the right combination of retail and workspace and housing, they're really tapped into what local people want. And and what are the barriers for community businesses? What what you know what stops them getting their place in a town centre on the high street? What needs to be done to support them? I mean, two things really. One is that they they often don't have a seat at the table, whether that's within business improvement districts or at the local authority levels. The second is that it's difficult for them to get access to um, to properties on the high street. So that's why in the report that we published, we we call for more support from local authorities in terms of transferring assets to community organisations, more financial support to um, allow communities to take on properties where they already have an interest in a property. It's difficult for them to raise finance quickly enough. And then also enhanced rights around the community right to buy rather than the current right to bid, which we have, which is very weak, that would allow communities to get greater access to properties on the high street, particularly where areas are in decline and empty shops are sort of causing that spiral of decline. Just tell us about the distinction, video for those who don't know, including me and our listeners, maybe the right to bid versus the right to buy. So at the moment, we have a, a right to bid. So you can register an asset as an asset of community value. Uh, when that asset goes up for sale, you have a six six month window within which the community can raise the money uh, to try and buy that asset. But the the seller doesn't have to sell to the community. So what we found is that of the out of every thousand assets that get registered, only 15 actually in, at the end end up in community hands. So there was lots of excitement around this in the introduction of this right um, under the Localism Act, but it hasn't really delivered for communities. So the right to buy, which draws on, you know, emulates the right that currently exists in Scotland, would give would do two things. It would give communities a much longer period within which to raise the finance, and it would make them the buyer of first choice when an asset was registered as an asset of community value. And we've also called for communities to have the right to force a sale without, you know, they can really find the evidence that the empty property is causing decline in their local area. So just to give you one example that we've worked on recently, um, the Observer Building in Hastings, which has been taken over finally by a community, it was empty and falling derelict for 34 years. It had 13 different owners. Nothing was ever done to that building. It was just passed from one owner to another People hung on to it, hoping that gentrification would turn around its value. Finally, the community or a community group has got hold of it and is trying to turn it around for the use within that community. And how did they manage to get the property? I mean, if the if the owners didn't want to give it up, the thirteenth owner of that property then did decide to sell, and they were able to to put together a package of, um, you know, loans mainly and some grant funding to then to then take on the buildings. So they now own the own the building. 
that building sat empty for 34 years because there was no way of anybody forcing a sale. So what we're calling for under the new right is that if you could really demonstrate that a building is neglected, then you would be able to force a sale if you could really demonstrate that there was a negative impact from that building remaining vacant. So let me take a hypothetical example, which is not hypothetical. There's a an old building in my constituency which used to be a cinema, and yeah. uh, the cinema is still there, sort of upstairs, and then it became a fireplace shop. Uh, right. It was rented as a fireplace shop in the uh, sort of downstairs. It stopped being a cinema, like I think, like twenty, thirty, maybe even forty years ago. Is that the kind of thing where the community right to buy might make a difference? It may be that whoever owns that building, if approached, could be if we could find out who owned it, which is always a challenge, um, and then approach them, they may be willing to enter into a sale. But I think what we've found is that lots of the lots of buildings are owned by institutions. Um, it's very difficult for community organisations to be able to engage with them. Um, and they are often holding on to buildings for increasing capital value over a very long term, but not doing anything to keep ensure the, the upkeep of those buildings. And, you know, they have no real incentive to make sure something happens in that building. So they're laying empty and um, falling into um, gradually into dereliction. Um, and that's really the, the context where we would see the right potentially enabling communities to do something they currently can't. Are there some great examples of businesses you've worked with? You've mentioned the lobster hatchery. We've also done some really exciting work in Anfield, um, which started with Home Baked, which is a community bakery, um, right in the shadows of Liverpool Football Club. There had been a bakery there for a very long time. The bakery um, closed. The community really wanted to reopen it. They came together. They reopened it as a, a community business. And they've gradually, over time, now worked with the council to take on the whole terrace of which the bakery is at one end and they are now through a community land trust bringing that whole terrace of empty houses back into use and right at the end of this terrace is another brand new um, community business called Kitty's Laundrette which is um, a laundrette that is also a community space and hosts community events and tries to both you know serve the community it's in through its facilities but also create a space where people can come together and um you know, and create a, a sense of community and social cohesion. So they've got a single terrace. Now they're, they've got ambitions to to keep that regeneration going as they move down the street. So it, I think what I really have been really excited about is the scale of ambition of community organisations. They're not just interested in doing one shop and, you know, that's it. Like a lot of them are moving to think about wholesale revitalisation of the high street and kind of re- regeneration on a much bigger scale. I have another parochial question to ask you, Video, which is, I wonder whether you, I wonder whether you funded any make your own sandwich oh, shops. Oh God, here we go. Why, why, why don't you try out your make your own sandwich concept in the foyer of your cinema? Maybe that's a good idea. Jeff and I have a long-running disagreement, Video, because I, my, my thesis is that the best shop-bought sandwich you've ever had is always going to be worse than the best homemade sandwich you've ever had. Therefore, you right. need to you need to create the circuit. Just bear with me here. You need to create the circumstances for people to make their own sandwiches. Uh, but I just wonder whether you've come across any business like that. No, we have definitely not funded any maker and sandwich. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that <laughs> may, maybe there's a market opportunity here. Uh, video. We have a thing on the podcast called the the Jeffocracy, where I am a benign leader. I don't get involved at all, except in the subject of make your own sandwiches, uh, which which I would 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 ban. You know, if if I gave you carte blanche and said, look, we want you to be in charge of high street regeneration, what what is the first thing you would do on day one? I think the first thing I would do is actually set up the fund. So we we call for a two hundred and fifty million pound, which we think I think is a kind of lower limit fund that would allow communities to 
quickly buy up commercial space. I think we need to create momentum behind this and create energy and excitement and give show lots of images of the possible. So I think that would be, you know, before I go to legislative change and things like that, which are much more complicated, I'd go for a fund, a high streets fund um, that could really kickstart a lot of a lot more of this across the country. Well, well, video. I'm certainly going to be making an application alongside the community uh, to you, either for a cinema, make your own sandwich shop, um, or maybe Jeff and I will go into the lobster business. Um, th- thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And now to hear a practical example of how things can be different. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Johnny Hayes, the founder and former chair of the Bishy Road Traders Association in York. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us. No, you're very welcome. You you ran a, Bish, a shop on Bishy Road for twenty years, um, and then you but you you set up in 2010 something called the Traders Association. Do you want to tell us what led you to set set up that Traders Association? Yeah, uh, we had a bit of a eureka moment uh, in 2010. Uh, the The street was always a lovely street, but had been very run down. Uh, Firstly, by the fact that there was a, a, a dual carriageway was due to go through there in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and so it had been really run down historically. Uh, but in 2010, uh, we had the closure of Terry's factory and all, we also lost our post office. And we had seven empty shops in a street of about 40 shops. And really, the future prospects were looking a bit bleak. Uh, but so we. We, our eureka moment came when uh, uh, Greenpeace, or uh, Friends of the Earth to be precise actually, uh, decided that they would like to do an experiment and r- run a street party with the absence of cars on the street. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, they, they closed the street at 6 o'clock and by 6.15 there were about 3,000 people on our street. And... Uh, it was this amazing day of uh, everybody having a fantastic time or amazing evening. And following on from that, we decided we've really got to start working together and doing what we can because really the prospects weren't good and we formed an association uh, and the rest is history. And what what did happen uh, after 2010? Well, having created the uh, Traders Association, the, the basis of it was is that we started working together rather than being uh, a bunch of separate businesses. We, it, uh, to put it in perspective, Bishy Road's a uh, very traditional, very ordinary little parade of shops uh, just outside York City Centre. Uh, and after we'd formed the association, we actually started to put on events and uh, street parties and uh, marketing our street as a group and the impact of that was pretty transformational basically we've gone from a situation where we've got seven empty properties uh, to a situation where we got we've got no empty properties where people uh, regard the street as a you know very much a, a hub and a, it's very much a, a place that people are very fond of and and it's a very busy little street now and what what it, what was it apart from forming the Traders Association and working together that you practically did to make that difference to so that the seven empty shops were no longer empty and the and the high street was sort of back in business? Uh, I mean, putting on events was the first major thing to to do. 
uh, I mean, we, we had the first event, as I say, it came completely out of the blue. But we carried on and we did an Independence Day uh, event on the 4th of, of July uh, in 2012. And that, again, we had about 4,000 people had turned up for that. We, we did events. We raised money through crowdfunding for uh, for lights and for, to, to make the street look really nice. And the impact with that was that was huge in terms of footfall, in terms of um, how popular the shops have become. Uh, and the net effect now is that we've got a popular, well-functioning uh, parade of shops where 65% of those people that shop on that street come by foot. And and if you think about the character of the shops, one of the issues about high streets is, well, there's different issues about the shops that you get on high streets, but often, often it can be, you know, the, the stereotype is the betting shop or the chicken shop. It just it can be very samey. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what, what's, what's, how's the character of your high street changed over those sort of nine or ten years? I would say that the street, Bishy Road, is actually quite an old-fashioned, very much a traditional street, the, the butcher, the baker, and the bicycle maker, really. It's, uh, and it's, ma- it's managed to maintain that, and that is actually what people really love about it but there, there have been new and uh, different businesses move in, moved in it's much more of a place to go and uh, there are about five uh, uh, diners down there now or restaurants, cafes open during the day and they bring a lot of people down and people sit outside and it's very vibrant Johnny, as an expert on high streets, I've got this idea that I want to put oh, to you, please, which Jeff is very ske- Jeff is very skeptical about. I've got this idea that the best homemade sandwich you you ever make is always better than the best shop bought sandwich you agreed, ever make, and therefore agreed. you should set up a you should get a set up a string of of make your own sandwich. And this shops. is where we disagree. Jeff thinks this is an absolutely useless idea because of hygiene and other reasons. Do you think it could run? Do you think it could fly? I'd stick to the day job. <laughs> I feared you might say that. I feared you might say that. Oh well, okay, Jeff, you take over. I feel, I feel, you know, positively put in my place. Uh, Johnny, do you get people from sort of different areas coming to you for advice on what can be done um, to revitalise, you know, their high street? And if so, you know, what what, what are the things that you tell them? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, since we won the, the GB High Streets Award, I mean, you know, we've got that for, as best local parade, but we also won the Ludicrous Award of Britain's Best High Street, which was a big award for a small street. In 2015, we've, yeah? In 2015, yeah. It's nice to hear Sorry, someone yeah, winning yeah, in 2015. Uh, <laughs> I know, that's what I was thinking, Jeff. Yeah, don't rub it in. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, we've had a lot of interest. I mean, it's a very simple story. It's not rocket science. It's basically work together, create an association if you can. It can make a huge difference. And working together and be, have an interest in your relationship with your community. You know, make, make the place where you live and work a great place to live and work. The independents are the key, I think to uh, the ales that are on the high streets. I think that, I mean, you, we wouldn't have a completely independent high street, but I think that the independents are actually that magic uh, element that brings something special to a high street and, and keeps it alive. Okay, Johnny Hayes, uh, that's brilliant. We um, 
We salute you. Take care. What do you think then, Jeff? Well, I find this very interesting as a subject. It's something we have touched upon before. We did uh, Towns and we uh, did that episode from Hebden Bridge sort of 18 months ago. I think that was episode 46, um, episode 70 as well. Um, I, I do think like an interesting thing that came out of this was what Kathy was talking about in that. Um, and I think, you know, this has come up previously as well, that what a town centre or what a high street is has changed throughout history and we're going through another one of those changes um and you know i I particularly enjoyed the ideas about community businesses from uh vidya um you definitely how about you i mean i know that you've been discouraged about make your own sandwiches and you know you've had bad feedback but yeah i think we should sort of part we should draw a veil over that maybe but um I think what's interesting about this is that retail on its own isn't the answer, obviously. And and Christoph Igre on episode seventy did talk, say similarly talked about uh, about this. Um, but but also um, I'm really struck by the notion of community-owned businesses and their um, kind of commitment to an area. It's not just do you really want a chain of a certain coffee shop. It's there's a level of commitment which is greater. And secondly, I suppose what's quite exciting is that there are organisations like Power to Change, Vidya's organisation, and you know you might think, oh, what can we do about it? You know, uh, it isn't hopeless. There are organisations out there that that really want to sort of make a difference. And 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 also, um, you know, if you hear about the example of Bishy Road, you know, things can be different. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Time for cheerful people. And our cheerful person this week is the founder and managing director of Richer Sounds, the UK's biggest hi-fi and home cinema equipment retailer, Julian Richer. Hello. Hi. Do you, um, do you get a lot of people of my age and demographic coming up to you and saying, oh, I used to read about you in Viz magazine every month? Yeah, I love it. Because <laughs> you would take out these Viz adverts is. in yeah. Viz magazine, but you would allow them to mercilessly mock you in, in those adverts. Yeah, we had some cheeky strap lines, I remember, and uh, uh, probably couldn't get away with it now i'd better not repeat them on air should i (laughs) (laughs) well maybe if people want to go to the british library and uh, dig up old copies of this and and i just saw firsthand how everybody wants to tell you about their branch of richer sounds yeah where they bought their first stereo great and it's quite an emotional thing when people spend their first paycheck you know or their university grant and uh, i love that because they remember it for the rest of their life um so you're here today to talk about you know the stuff you've done both with richer sounds and uh more more broadly um i wonder just for people who've seen it on the high street but don't know much about the story behind it can you just tell us a little bit about it you were very young when you started the business yeah i went to a a, a expensive boarding school and had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because all the uh the kids had rich parents and i'd look out the window and watch them arrive in their chauffeur-driven big cars at the weekend and I made my dad park his old Renault around the back you know and I felt I wanted to redress the balance and so I started wheeling and dealing at school I started when I was 14 and uh, with 10 pounds and by the time I was 17 I had three people uh, working for me and I, I set up my first shop when I was 19 which was the first Richard Sounds branch at London Bridge. And what was it that you were doing differently? It was the, the old sort of FW Woolworth, um, stack them high, sell them cheap. Yeah, well, we specialised in end-of-line product because suppliers wouldn't wouldn't give us the new brands, and that went well. And, and, and what I discovered was, and it's really simple, but if you give great service and great value together, um, you're unassailable. I know that sounds really simple. I mean, there's a lot more to it probably than that, but I just always focused on value and service. And then I, after that, I realised that... To give good service when you expand the business, it's fine when I'm standing there all day. But if you want to have a chain of shots, you want a bunch of people to give great service, you have to look after them, quite rightly. And uh, I, I noticed, observed two completely different outputs from people, depending on how I treated them. And was that sort of a light bulb road to Damascus moment? Or was that something that was in you in terms of your values and how you were brought up? Yeah, my parents worked for Marks and Spencer in the Kilburn branch, and they were trainee managers. And in those days, uh, Simon Marks, who was the chairman, died in 1965. Um, you know, he'd turn up with his, in his limo, and he'd check the loos, and he'd check the staff had a hot lunch. You know, my parents used to talk about the amazing benefits at M&S. Um, and I sort of, it's it sunk in. There were a couple of penny drop moments. One, I read a book called In Search of Excellence by two academics in the States, which a big seller, and they noticed that the most successful companies were due to their great service and the way they treated their staff. And the second penny drop moment was when I went to work at Asda with a guy called Archie Norman had gone in to turn it around, and he wanted to use my ideas, and I, I was completely bemused, but they worked. And it just proved that if we motivate people, we can get so much to treat them well fundamentally, and I have a little formula for how to do it. It makes a huge difference. Your your book, Julian, the um, the ethical capitalist, mm-hmm. 
I mean, it, it is unusual, isn't it, for a, a business person and somebody who believes in capitalism to be, I mean, maybe it's less unusual than it was, but, but to be taking quite a sceptical view about the way capitalism works today. Yeah, I'm rather proud of that. So I'm a capitalist that is prepared to um, criticise capitalism. And I think that hopefully that's a little novel, but I'm not the only one. I guess I do agree it's a small club, but as you rightly say, I think it's a growing group of people. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge, and I want, I really I want politicians across the political spectrum to recognize this that we look i am a capitalist i make money from capitalism i am um, I, my mum would like me to be a doctor but i faint if i see blood as woody allen said he hates blood especially side of blood especially his own but um i i love you know I, lo- I like doing what i do and i like having nice things but i absolutely recognize that you know there is it, it there's a downside to it. There's a tendency to uh, encourage exploitation, to encourage greed. You know, consumers need goods and services, but you know, uh, um, and we need jobs, and we need the public sector uh, uh, to derive its money from taxation. And the problem is, of course, when businesses ignore their obligations to the state or, or intentionally go around them. And that is that is my problem. So, first part of my book is the benefits you'll derive from running your business uh, responsibly. And if business business people don't get that, the state needs to be much tougher. And what would you like to see the the state doing more of so i look at all the stakeholders so in terms of uh, employees i absolutely hate zero hour contracts okay so unless requested by the employees for a tiny number the great majority of people on zero hour contracts and nine hundred thousand in the country don't have access to to housing because there's great sways where there's no social housing sways of the country and they can't go to a landlord and so i don't know if i'm going to get any uh, wages this month to pay your rent i mean that is outrageous you know and uh i feel very strong about that 20 percent of the of workers don't earn the real living wage they're 14 million people below the poverty line four million children four million in work that is so wrong the big one is taxation big one is taxation so there's a tax gap in the economy which uh, and i know you've spoken about this before but the tax gap i set up an organization called tax watch to investigate and expose aggressive tax avoidance so the tax gap is the hole in the bucket that's leaking out the economy now the revenue admit to 30 35 billion a year and they would talk it down because it's their job to collect it but that doesn't include profit shifting and it doesn't include loopholes um and um uh Clearly, and that doesn't include what they don't know. It's only what they can identify. We think it could be double that. What I think is sort of remarkable about you, Julian, is you talk the talk about the problems of capitalism and what needs to be done. Sure. And I think lots of people were impressed by what you said. And then earlier this year, you sort of walked the walk in a most sort of spectacular way by announcing that you were transferring, I think it's 60% of the company into an employee-owned Trust. trust. I That's mean, right. do you want to just talk about that decision? Because, because you know, it, as we sort of implied earlier, not you know, not that many people who are capitalists have have launched such a sharp critique. But I can't think of any really who've who've kind of. You've done what you've done. Well, that's kind. And I think ours actually was the biggest one since John Speed and Lewis did it in 1929. So we had some special... Yeah, he's re- slightly outside my memory zone. Like, <laughs> Jeff <laughs> remembers I him, but... I wasn't suggesting otherwise. So a couple, a couple of reasons which are special or unique to, to us. So one, my father dropped down dead when he was 60, <clears throat> and I was 60 in March. And uh, uh, it's sort of... Um, and my my wife, who is amazing, but she'd admit she's not very commercial. And she, we were both worried if I predeceased her, it would leave her with a a mess to sort out, and the bank manager wouldn't like it, and the credit insurers wouldn't like it either. So we thought it was a good time to think about it. We don't have any children. That's the other factor we have. But also, uh, there's a book called The uh, Enlightened Capitalist by James Atul, and he talks about 
hopefully ethical you know i'm not the first guy that that was an ethical capitalist but he talks about how how it gets lost over generations you know uh, businesses get taken over or they float and they lose their culture and one really good way of ensuring succession both for my demise but also for the culture was this idea of an employee ownership trust and uh, the first payment uh, the initial payment was 9.2 million and i gave just under 4 million away to colleagues as a celebration bonus thank you which has nothing to do with the actual succession planning but i thought it was a really nice thing to do and i think they, they'd agree with that uh, and i'd do it again tomorrow and what is the what has been the reaction of your employees and what will this mean for the company going forward when when 60 percent of the company is in an employee-owned trust well the, the actual announcement you can imagine i had some very um there was a deadly silence in the hall. It was the end of a conference, our annual conference. I had some very large guys lift me up with tears in their eyes, hugging me and thanking me. It was rather emotional and lovely. But more importantly, they could do – look, we pay the real living wage and we don't have zero-hour contracts, etc. And I do really care about my people. But at the end of the day, a lot of people find they can manage, but they, even with that, they can't save very much money. So I have a lump sum. Just to explain for your listeners, we, we gave a £1,000 to each colleague for every year of service. So there were quite a lot of colleagues just picking up twenty grand without – you know, they hadn't expected yeah. it that morning when they got out of bed. So they were able to uh, get married. They could put a deposit on a home. They could go on a holiday of a lifetime or buy that car they'd, that they thought they could never afford. So I got a whole list of things my secretary gave me. She gave me some discreet feedback on the sort of response. It was rather wonderful. In terms of the company, how things have changed, very little so far. Over the years, I'm going to sort of drop back, which I'm sure I'll find difficult. But we have set up a proper forum, a proper council, proper trustees group, and absolutely right that we should. I've now got an employment contract, and that was interesting negotiation my holiday and my wages <laughs> uh, something i hadn't been used to but absolutely right of course and what about employee ownership more generally i mean can it play more of a role in the economy i'd like to encourage people to do that certainly if they have similar circumstances to myself i think a lot of people don't know when to let go so hopefully there's a lesson there and a lot of people you know they have children who don't want to go into their business and i absolutely recommend it i remember telling a friend of mine who's in the music industry about it and he went and did it's called an eot you know an employee ownership trust it abbreviates to not a mainly attractive abbreviation but uh, he went and did yeah. his eot straight after lunch before i'd done mine i was rather jealous yeah. you know so i think it's a really good uh, what do we want? Eons. When do we want <laughs> after them? Lunch. After lunch. Straight after lunch. Uh, I'm not not sure it'll no, catch on. Right, um right. but 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 it's a good idea, yeah. isn't it? Um, I think it's it's good, yeah. And what what is the reaction like from your contemporaries? How many of them have the reaction like uh, your friend did over that lunch and said, I'm gonna do this this afternoon? And how many of them say you're you're insane, Julian? Yeah, well they wouldn't say it to my face probably, they're far too <laughs> polite. But um interesting. I'll tell you what's interesting about this is that I do know quite a few you know, we're a small group and we hang out. You know, when I did my transfer, I had some very nice letters from or emails from Guy Watson, the Riverford Organics, uh, uh, Will Butler Adams, who runs um, Brompton. And that was lovely. I had some cranky calls and begging letters as well, you can imagine. Uh, but I had some. Did you get mine? Um, <laughs> there were quite a few. I'll have to check. <laughs> Sweet. Um, I so- think most of them were from me. <laughs> so, Julian, we always like to end these chats on a cheerful note. And, and I know that you are keen for a role in the Jeffocracy. Definitely. Um, uh, Minister for Fairness. How does that sound? That's the one I was going to ask you about. Actually. So, <laughs> so, what what is what is your what is your big idea as Minister for Fairness? Okay. Well, 
I just get really, really angry that I've set up four not-for-profits and I've got two more in the pipeline, uh, and they're all about fairness. You know, we're in a great country, you know, reasons to be cheerful, Britain is great, okay? As Eric Idle said, we must always look on the bright side, but there's still too much unfairness, and I want to try and do something about that. So I'm particularly interested in poverty. We've touched on that today. I'm particularly interested in housing. We didn't get a chance to touch on that today. Um, uh, I hate zero-hour contracts. We did speak about that. The criminal justice system is a disgrace, and also, you know, the, the the benefits. I mean, people are having a tough time. So all those things, I want executive powers to go in and do something about it. Do we give him the job, Ed? Sounds good. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Julian, I think you're. it's really inspiring. And I think if all business people were like you, um, it would be a different country. So thanks so much yeah, for joining really us. Welcome. Lovely to speak to you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro, and we've got uh, we've, we're launching something which hopefully uh, will, will be more successful than a make your own sandwich shop. Yeah, all right, all right. Do you need to sort of you know rub it in? Are we ready? Are we ready for the big unveil here? Yes, we are. We have a new website which has an extremely fetching picture of both of us, even if I say so myself. Uh, cheerfulpodcast.com. And what's really exciting about this is that people can read about all the background information on the episode, uh, some of the the documents, the reports, and all that. So, you know, I think I think it's what the audience have been crying out for. We're giving the people what they want. Also on the website, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when we're doing live shows and whatnot. But um, what is uh, going to be great is we are starting a Reasons to be Cheerful newsletter, which, again, will give you lots of background on the episodes. It will give you follow-up from previous episodes. It will tell you how, if you want to become involved, if you want to help make a difference, get some of these ideas on their feet and out there. Uh, there will be ways to join in with that kind of thing. And um, that newsletter, you can sign up for it again by going to the website cheerfulpodcast.com I'd like to thank our guests Kathy Parker Vidya Alexson and Johnny Hayes and the uh, tremendous Julian Richer for coming on and telling us how to be uh, a good and ethical capitalist Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon Gail Lofthouse is our announcer Ed Seed made the music James Deacon he, he made those little ident's with Gail speaking on them and our artwork wasn't done by Emily Power. But by Henry Cole. He's been the lobster hatcher. He's been the sandwich snatcher. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.